Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. Um, we have Jean Falser with us today. And uh, this is uh, one of over 500,000, no, <laughs> over 1,000 programs since the uh, pandemic began, where we bring this to you um, in uh, person, live stream, video, YouTube podcast, wherever we can, however we can get it to you. Um, and I uh, wanted to thank the crew that, that, uh, here that works, that did such a fantastic job during the pandemic in making the Commonwealth Club not only survive, but thrive during that time under very difficult circumstances. It's kind of hard when you know, you're a, a, a lecture facility and you can't have lectures. It sort of puts a, a, a crimp on what you're doing. So um, today uh, we're going to talk about a very important piece of California history, uh, which is not ignored, um, but certainly overlooked most of the time. And uh, so we have Jeannie Fowler here with her uh, new book, California, A Slave State. And uh, we're going to go through the history, then we're going to talk about the ideas behind it a little bit, um, and also her work on the reparations committee. So Jeannie, thanks so much for, for joining us at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. I'm glad to be back here. Thank you. So as I said, let's start with the history. So let's go back as far you know, uh, into this history uh, as we go. We won't go all the way back to um, the Native American tribes. Uh, that's a good place to stop here. Let's do terminology first. In your book, you use lots of different terminologies, Native Americans, Native Indians. Native... How did you make that choice? First of all, you used a lot of different ones, but I know that this is a sort of a, uh, an important issue because a lot of tribes like certain names, don't like other names. And I thought, how did you make your academic choice about that? Well, I think it's really important to start with the idea that California tribes did not have a history of slavery. That there was an occasional um, somebody who was a victor in a war, um, who was taken, negotiated. But for the most part, especially all the coastal tribes, there just was not a long history mm-hmm. of slavery as as we think of it. Mm-hmm. So let's clear that one. Yeah, that's where I want to start. Yeah. <laughs> right away, um, and in terms of talking about Native American people. A lot of Native American people still use and prefer the word Indian, Mm -hmm. despite all of the history that we think of when we think of that term. And I used the word Native American when it was relevant. I used the word Indian, such as the bizarre act for the government and protection of the Indian, Mm -hmm. which legalized the slavery of California Native people. I tried to use the tribe's names mm-hmm. when they were available. A lot of this history is going on at the same time as the genocide in California. Many tribes were in flight and um, Congress did not want to give land to California Native Americans. And so they set up very few very, very remote reservations where tribes were blended together. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it was just hard to find out who was where. Um, the reservations weren't well guarded. And so people were transported there under guard and then they fled. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of movement of Native Americans around California during that time. 
And I just had no way often of knowing who I was talking about in terms of tribal origin. And then I used the word Native American, or when it would come up, I would use the word Indian. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would use the word tribal people. Mm -hmm. Great. So um, I, I just think it's important because it's, it's hard. You cannot make every group happy uh, using the terms because everybody has their preferred term. And I just wanted to, your, your choices, I think it's important that the concern that we have for respect for every group be expressed first, and then this is how you have to decide in the book. So the, uh, the thousands of years of, of uh, Native American history here in California that, that preceded this, we'll just start with the slavery that came with the Spanish. Um, but the Spanish missions got started at a time where Spain had already been, had their empire for a long time, for more than 100 years in, in South America and Central America, before California came along. So, so why don't you tell maybe a couple of the stories of, of how the Spanish decided, um, including you can talk about Father Sarah, uh, to, to, to come up to California and why they did it. It was interesting. The first slaves, enslaved people, um, were Native Americans who were enslaved by the Franciscan missionaries. They were enslaved by Spain in the 18th century, in 1769, um, Junipero Serra crosses the border of California right at San Diego. He comes by land. He was wounded. He's determined to walk across the border, and he walks wounded with a seeping leg um, from the, the mother mission in Laredo, in Baja, California, and he walks north, and he meets up with the contingent of, really, it's tiny, a hundred Spanish soldiers and eight fanatical priests cross the border at San Diego, and some come by sea. The Kumayai and Ipai people, who are the local people in San Diego, are appalled at this invasion, they're a little bit curious by the fancy gold crosses, but mostly they're watching these ships, especially the two ships, keep unloading dead sailors. Mm -hmm. So this isn't a very impressive, attractive <laughs> conversion moment. The Spanish come... Those, the, soldier, those, those soldiers were dead because of the terrors of, of, of the travel, not, not because they were assassinated. Or no, they weren't assassinated. Yeah, and died on, in route. They died in route yeah. from disease and hunger and malnutrition. And so the first thing the Kumayai see are these dead bodies being unloaded from the ships. Not so persuasive. Mm -hmm. The Spanish come under orders to expand the Spanish Empire into California um, they have two goals. The first goal is to stop the Russians who are coming from the north. Nothing I learned at Hamilton High School in Los Angeles, that the <laughs> Russians were coming, <laughs> in fact, from the north. I thought um, Russian River was just a vacation resort. <laughs> or, or where the Bohemian Club hangs out. Haven't been invited there yet. <laughs> Not likely. And so they're supposed to stop the Russians who are coming from the north 
They are under a papal bull, an order to convert California tribes um, to Catholicism. The Spanish Empire isn't very happy with the Jesuits, and they hand off the northern mission project to the Franciscans. So the order is to occupy California and to use the fertile land, the fields of California, to provide food for the Native American people, the indigenous people, who have been captured and are forced to do the silver mines in Mexico and in Peru. So they want to feed the people. They want to extend Mexico's sovereignty, although they own the land, in, from Baja into Alta, California, and stop the Russians coming from the north. And so the plan is to set up slave plantations to grow food, but also with this theological sidebar, which is to convert all of the um, Native American people along the coast of California to Catholicism. Well, we, we have a, so much cruelty to cover uh, in, in just one hour um, that I think uh, the, the mission is, is one of the most well-known pieces of this, but that was the start of institutionalized slavery in California. I think it's real important today to not only focus on the issue of cruelty, mm-hmm. that every single place there was slavery in California, there were flights, escapes, crazy organized slave revolts that brought the mission system to an end. We didn't learn about this. Our kids didn't learn about this in the fourth grade mission project. But the Kumeyaay people, within a couple of years of Sarah setting up the mission in San Diego and have entrapped Kumeyaay and Ipai people into the mission, the Kumeyaay organize a revolt. So this is why I just want to yeah, well, no, not well, only... Let's talk about the revolt, because I was just in Sacramento, actually, at the California Museum, and they have a nice... Uh, one of the uh, people that they're honoring is Toy Parina. Toy Parina. Toy Parina, yeah. Why don't you tell her, her story, because that's, that's a good one. All right. The, there are lots of stories. Um, the Kumeyaay people sweep down from the mesas and the coastline, the, the Kumayai lived in small clans all over San Diego County and in what we now think of as Baja, California. And they organize a slave revolt and they plan it. They carve the arrows, they make new bows, and they sweep down and they burn San Diego Mission. They killed the head priest, Padre Jaime, and they free all of the Kumayai people never to return. So this story starts with a slave revolt that I didn't know about. Um, Toy Perina was at Mission San Gabriel. She was Tongva um, in the valley, in the valley north of L.A. And Toy Perina is a teenager. She's been designated as a shaman. She is totally stoked up on Tolachi tea. She's pretty much stoned out, as far as I can tell, much of the time. And she's designated a shaman, and she's urged to lead a revolt at Mission San Gabriel, which is the mission 
mm-hmm. you know, in what we now call the valley. And a lot of people are encouraging her to do this, and she gathers the people together, and she's ratted out. And so just as they're crossing the wall to free the people at Mission San Gabriel, she's captured along with all the other rebels. And she's sort of one of my heroines because when they capture her, they want her to testify and they give her a little witness stool and they, she says, I will not sit on your stool. Mm. And she stands during her testimony and charges them with the captivity of her people. And she sent to one of the presidios. The presidios were forts or jails. She sent to one of the presidios forever. She's banned from her people. And her revolt fails. Other revolts succeed. What I also didn't know, thinking about the fourth grade mission project, is that there is an organized slave revolt at Mission Santa Barbara, Santa Inez, Mission Semperissima, and they take over the missions, and all of the Native people who are captured at those missions flee into the Tulis, and they escape. They're chased by the Mexican military. At this point, California is owned by Mexico. They escape into the Tulis, and... The military chases them. The horses can't make it through the Thule marshes. And they finally roll through with a cannon and blast the people open. Many are slaughtered. Some are forced to return. And most of them flee into the Thule marshes. Mm. So the slave revolts go mission by mission by mission, whether it's the Kumayai or the Tongva. Um, And together, they bring down the mission system. What also brings down the mission system is that Mexico wants this land. Mm-hmm. They don't care about the mission system. Right. Once Mexico takes over from Spain. Yeah. I mean, when they get their independence. Yeah. So a, a series of forces come together to bring the missions down. Mm-hmm. Then the question is, what's Mexico going to do with all of this land? And I found these incredible documents where the tribal people at the different missions demand the land that they have been forced to turn from their land into mission land, and they demand their land back, they demand compensation, they demand freedom, and, and they actually demand the right to vote, which they don't get. So the Toy Perina story, if she had only been burnt at the stake, you know, it would have been Joan of Arc all over again, you know. That's really weird. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very similar story. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. I mean, Toy Perina never saw herself as a martyr. Right. You know, she really saw herself as a leader and charismatic and divine, a spiritual leader, a shaman, a leader of her people. And she didn't plan to lose. No. They didn't figure it out quite perfectly. No, I'm, I'm sure Joan wanted to win, too. <laughs> Um, so uh, let's cover the Russians because that's a part that a lot of people don't understand. And I thought one of your statistics was fantastic, which was that one sixth of the Russian expe- Russian government expenditures in a year went to trying to set up this trade in otter pelts. And 
And, and the other one that was fascinating was how much an otter pelt sold for in Beijing and that this was part of their thing. So why don't, why don't you tell what motivated the Russians to come in? Because it wasn't the same motive at all as the Spanish. Totally different. It was not land and it wasn't God. Right. They wanted the otter pelt. Otter Well, I mean, we think of otter pelts are really, otters are really cute, you know, and they lie on their back and they, you know, crack crabs. But they also have a million hairs per square inch. It is the softest, silkiest fur in the world. And if we look at pictures now of the Chinese Mandarin class, and we see these huge fur collars and muffs and rings around their robes, that's otter fur for the most part. And a lot of it came from California. Mm. The Russians have crossed the Bering Straits. They're thinking they're going to find a route to China, just the eternal route to China. And they don't find it. Bering is shipwrecked on a rock. Bering dies. And he spends this horrible winter. Well, he's dead. But his people, his sailors, spend this horrible winter on the rocks. And as the ice melts, they find otter fur. And they rebuild their broken ship. The ice doesn't melt till May. And they take it back to Russia and they deliver to the emperor a thousand otter pelts. And the pelts were selling in the currency of the time for $3,500 per pelt. And they've taken back a thousand of these pelts. And it, they call it soft gold. And this is going to save the broken Russian empire. Mm -hmm. So no route to China, but a route to incredible wealth and prosperity. And to make it work, Russia creates the Russian-American Company. And in the charter, it says that the Russian fur hunters are allowed to enslave 50% of the Alaska Native men. Hmm. The Alaska Native men in their kayaks are the only ones who are really skillful enough to kill the otter. So there's a different slave triangle of Alaska, California, Canton, mm -hmm. that grows out of that. When I went to Berkeley, we would go to Fort Ross and we'd take a bottle of wine and eat the little Russian cookies and the little girls with the aprons, the butter cookies. Mm -hmm. um, I had no idea that Fort Ross was a slave plantation. Mm -hmm. And that's where Russia bases this trade out of. They're scared of the Spanish so they deposit the otter hunters on the Farallone Islands, and they abandon them for six months. And American, actually Boston whaling ships sail by, pick up the pelts, leave them a bag of flour, and told to survive. And they're guarded by a Russian soldier. There are also Alaska Native women who are creating these skin kayaks, mm -hmm. an incredible waterproof clothing. Um, REI has nothing on this. <laughs> they are made out of the gut of the, um, usually of the sea lion, mm -hmm. totally waterproof clothing. And those, the women sew and they oil and stitch the kayaks. Mm -hmm. The Alaska natives paddle up what you call the Russian River now, mm -hmm. we call the Russian River now. 
they were scared to go to shore because that's where the Spanish were. Mm-hmm. So, and also for those of you who've spent time on the rather smelly Farallon Islands, um, they're surrounded by sharks. So it wasn't an easy escape for the Alaskan Native people, and they're far from home. It was amazing how um, cavalier they were about uh, using these people and then just uh, leaving them. It was just like, they, they even, even in their own self-interest, it would seem that they would have taken slightly better care of them. I think self-interest and the economics of enslavement don't necessarily mean to treat these working people well, ever. It certainly doesn't seem that way. I mean, part of the definition of slavery involves forced mobility, violence, rape, constriction, um, starvation, fear, threats about the people still at home. So... It's not a labor force that tends to be treated with respect. Right. And the question for, the question for me is, uh, for you, is that that's been going on for all of human history uh, in lots and lots of places. Most times not quite as bad as some of the stuff we've had, but still very bad. Do you have any idea, having studied this so thoroughly, why we are so cruel to, to somebody else? Why would we do that? No. No, no answer. Okay. I, I've lived with this book for almost eight years mm-hmm. with time out for some life for COVID. Um, mm-hmm. And at the end of it, and maybe it's my optimistic DNA that mm-hmm. I got from my dad, mm-hmm. um, my politics, I don't have, I don't know if anybody here has an explanation for human evil mm-hmm. and brutality. I can say that it was about profit. It was about conquest of land. It was about expansion. It was about power. But at the end of the day, um, I don't know. I truly do not know how I wrote this book, and I don't have an explanation for human evil. It's interesting that some of the other things that you mentioned, so I'm going to jump time frame for just a second here, uh, to 1850s in San Francisco. And uh, you mentioned that the murder rate for the first six years after the gold rush in San Francisco, that 1,200 people were murdered in those six years in that town. And it seems to me, I don't have the exact statistics, but maybe the average number of people in the town was 25,000 during those six years. That would be a murder rate of, of 800 per 100,000 people. Right now, our murder rate is 6.9 per 100,000 people. And St. Louis is at about 65 or something like that, which is the highest in the United States. And the murder rate in San Francisco was 800 per. So it's 100 times worse than it is now. And it was an all-male society, as as we we know, or an almost all-male society. Um, And it wasn't exactly the highly educated that came. I mean, certainly some, but it was, it was the rough crowd, and uh, this rough crowd, um, I think it has to do with something in psychology, that if you feel that you're at the dregs, that you have to make somebody else feel worse than you are so that you can feel you're on top of them. Something it like was, that. I mean, the gold rush brought a lot of greed, a lot of violence, a lot of petty crime, 
a loaf of bread was selling for $18 for a loaf of bread. People were starving. Um, so, and people were violent, and this aura of gold brought people from all over the world. The news of gold traveled the Pacific Rim very quickly. It was easier to get here in San Francisco from China or from Chile or Argentina, where there were skillful gold miners, a tradition of gold mining. It was easier to get here from Latin and South America and from Asia than it was to either cross the plains or cross through the jungles of Panama mm -hmm. to come here to mine. So it was a highly male population, but that would have to leave out all of the Native American women mm -hmm. who were here and the Chinese girls who were kidnapped from the port cities of Guangdong, of Canton, and brought here as enslaved prostitutes to service this very, what was called then a bachelor town or a bachelor community. So it was a violent, greedy, masculine town, but it wasn't, I wouldn't construct all of the gold miners as, quote, the dregs of society. Mm. We know that, well, I didn't know, know now, that plantation owners crossed the plains or through the jungles of Panama, very wealthy plantation owners, bringing with them two, three, or four enslaved African-American men who walked across the plains or who carried their owners equipment and gambling tents and mining equipment through the jungles of Panama, up one side the Chagra River, down the other, and waited on the other side with thousands of miners competing on little ships to bring them up to San Francisco and then to go on to Sacramento, which was the base for the, the gold rush. So there were very wealthy people, and people are making money, making profit off of the gold rush and off of enslaved people to do the really nasty work of standing up to here, you know, in the mud, looking for, well, the gold nuggets went very fast. They're looking for little, sliv little slivers, gold dust, which is nasty, dirty, cold, muddy work. A lot of the plantation owners, when they get here, realize they're not up for it. Mm -hmm. And they want to go back. Yeah, it, it was a fascinating part, not, not only of that element of it, bringing slaves with them, but of the politics of early California was that there was such a large number of southern plantation owners. Did you come across anything that showed it was an intentional attempt to send some people from the South in order to try to influence the decision about whether California would be a slave state or, because this was before the Missouri Compromise. It was, and, and I know that people had sent from the South to Missouri to try to influence the, the vote there and other places. So was California part of that? Was it intentional or was it just that the gold uh, grabbed people's attention? Well, I think gold was huge yeah. in, as a magnet of bringing people to California. It was men, they wanted adventure, they wanted to get away from home. The U.S. had just won in 1848 the war against Mexico. 
And we have taken, we the United States, have lopped off and taken the top half of Mexico. Some numbers are 55% of Mexico. All of a sudden, in 1848, becomes American. And then the issue is, what do we do with it? And the pressure is on with gold to get California quickly into the United States. California is sending back annually, in the money of the time, $1.2 billion of gold back to the banks, the insurance company, the shipping companies in the East Coast. So this one for one, one free state, one slave state will enter in a paired way. That's done because there's no state to pair with California. There's this thing. It isn't ever even legally a territory out west that quickly has to become a state. And plantation owners have always wanted the have always wanted slavery to go west. Mm -hmm. And part of the pressure for the Mexican-American War, the war against Mexico, is to grab as much territory as they can and turn it into areas where slavery could thrive. Mm -hmm. Mainly people were thinking tobacco and cotton. Tobacco and cotton are horrible for the land. And the land in the South was in bad shape the solution was just expand slavery to the West. It, it expands very quickly into Texas. Right away, there are 200,000 enslaved African Americans in Texas, very quickly. In fact, some of the plantation owners don't even bother to bring slaves from their own plantation with them. They're just going to buy them en route to California and go through northern Texas and take them off of the cotton fields. One of the stories you told that was very interesting, it was a small story, but it was a, a, a revolt of free blacks in California in the 1850s that, that thought that they were going to be free here uh, and didn't work out that way. And a whole group of them moved to British Columbia, which reminded me of how a large number of free blacks in New Orleans moved to, to uh, Mexico and S uh, Central America at the same time. And I, that part of the story isn't, isn't told very often either, that, that America was such an awful place to live that people were leaving to go to other countries uh, in order to avoid the, the, the serious issue. Yeah, in, in the 1850s, free blacks from... In the 1850s, free blacks... Um, wanted to come to California for the gold rush, just like everybody else. They wanted the money, the adventure. But what free black people in the Northeast were facing was the fugitive slave law. So in addition to all of the reasons white men are coming West, there was this real pressure to um, get away from the fugitive slave law, which pretty much made it available for white people to ensnare any black person they saw and sell them, sell them or transport them south. So Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, is, says to his incredible community of, of free black people, don't go. You know, we're in the midst, the height of the abolitionist movement. It will betray our cause for freedom for you to leave now. And they say, 
Douglas, we're out of here. We have the same right as every other person to access to this wealth. And we got to get out of here because of the fugitive slave law. Mm. Douglas says back to them, okay, and he picks a few of them, including one of the men, an important figure in California history, Mifflin Wister Gibbs. He says to Gibbs, okay, you can go with my blessing, but travel with me for a summer so that you learn how to be an organizer mm. and an orator. And they see it all. They see the burned churches. They see the violence. And Gibbs comes out here and becomes one of the leaders of free black people in California. And he meets up with other free black people who have come out here too. They don't expect to find enslaved blacks in California. They do not expect to find enslaved black people in California up in the mines or in the streets of San Francisco. And in the Constitution was against it. Well, no. Sort of. It's, it's dicey because California is quickly writes a constitution so it can join the United States. And it's supposed to enter as a free state. That's the deal. But it writes into the constitution slavery will not be tolerated in California. And it's a loophole. Tolerate is not a legal standard. And they write this buyout into the Constitution. Of the 44 white people who write the Constitution, many were Southern slaveholders. They know just what they're doing. It's a deliberate out. Hmm. And it's built into this, quote, freedom Constitution. So there's a big debate in Washington whether or not we're actually going to admit California. It takes a year from 49 to 50 to admit California into the United States. But the minute it happens, the very first law, the very first law that's passed in California is the 1850 Act for the, protect, the Government and Protection of the Indian. Our very first law is to legalize the, cap the capture, the forced indenture, and enslavement of Native American people. That's our first duty under the do we will not tolerate mm -hmm. slavery. We never meant it. Yeah, never meant it. Um, and there's some pretty famous uh, characters from that period of time who were all in favor of it, that, whose names are still dotted all over our, our location. Right? Sutter? Sutter, mm -hmm. among others. Yeah, Hastings. Yeah. Hastings, whose name was just removed from Hastings Law School. It's getting one of these generic University of California law. I don't know how many of those names they're going to keep recycling before they start to honor some of the true heroes mm -hmm. of the first civil rights movement in California. And, and uh, the, in addition to the slavery, there was uh, intentional massacring uh, of, of the people, too. Uh, this is all happening against what historian Ben Madley, in his amazing, thorough book, um, American Genocide, documented for all of us. It's, it's all happening against the, um, the California genocide, that as soon as the United States takes California, wins it in the war against Mexico. The 
they bring in the American military, and the plan is to open up all of the land of California for settlers. The academic term of settler colonialism fits perfectly. And the idea is we will conquer through settlement. And, but we can't conquer through settlement because there are 250 Native American tribes in California. The solution is to slaughter the men on the theory that they were the warriors, to torch the villages, and the women and children are on the, on the run. They're the ones who are most vulnerable under the Act for the Government Protection of the Indian. So the Native American population, by slaughter, by torching the food supplies and, and the villages, and people are on the run, um, become, ex- become vulnerable. And also the tribes are decimated. The numbers vary, but people pretty much agree that there were about 310,000 Native American people in California at the time that the Spanish invade. The numbers I've read go between 6,000 and 30,000 people, Native American people, live through the gold rush. So from 310,000 to top it at 30,000 people is a horrific genocide. And the people who are available for captivity to be this labor force, who is going to work here? Who's going to farm these fields and grow the orchards and the vineyards are enslaved people. Right now, a fair bit of that labor from the orchards, the vineyards, up to the cannabis grows Mm -hmm. in the Emerald Triangle are people who've been trafficked, people who've been human trafficked. The desperate greed for an unpaid labor force drives the creation like the tectonic plates, it drives the creation of the state. Yeah, we just went right up to modern day time. Um, we skipped some, but yeah. we, we skipped a little bit, yes. But but uh, and there's lots of detail. We'll we'll, we'll go back a little bit. But um, why don't we just discuss that a little bit? The the what I find um, comparative in in your book. Um, you talk about Humboldt County and the extreme use of, of unpaid labor or slave labor or people who disappear in, into when it was illegal. Uh, and even now, half of it is still illegal because they don't want to follow the costs of becoming legal for uh, creating marijuana. And it, it reminded me of the otter pelts. You know, the otter pelts were a fashion in Beijing. Marijuana is a fashion in, in, in the United States. And without, without the... You know, if the mandarins had said, we don't want the otter pelts, and we don't, we don't care about the otter pelts, then the otters would have been left alone, and there wouldn't have been this entire destruction of, of civilization along that coast. And we, we know very well that American use of drugs is causing this destruction in lots of places, including in Humboldt County in California, of civilizations in order to supply the drugs. So maybe we'll talk about that again when we get to reparations or how to deal with the problem. But... Um, it's partially, partially driven. These things are driven by other people's desires, fashions even. I think that the notion of free labor and unpaid labor, involuntary labor, um, is 
part of the thread that has created California, and it goes through working backwards. If we think of modern human trafficking mm -hmm. in the sex trade and in the fields now, um, and working backwards from that, if we think about the carceral state and the unpaid labor in our prison system, where people are building the furniture that we use, um, the clothing that we wear, that, pe that the penitentiaries in California are still subcontracting convicts, unpaid people who are fed, clothed, guarded by our taxpayer dollars, and yet the profits of their labor are going into private industries for t-shirts and sweatpants and stuff that we have no idea where what we're wearing, what we're using, is being produced in our modern prison system. The birth of the carceral state is, in California is San Quentin. Mm -hmm. And as soon as San Quentin is built by the prisoners themselves, this corrupt contractor rents it out to private industries. Um, now, to he was quite a character. They, we can't cover him in too much detail, but that was a fascinating story. What was his name? Estel? James Edsel. Edsel, yeah. That he was, you know, got the, the uh, governor and everything to approve of what he was doing, and he just seemed like the warden from hell. Yeah, I mean, he was, what he first does is he gets the idea that he can get free labor from convicts, and he gets the legislature to agree that all of the jails in California, in little towns, will send him their prisoners, and they become convicts. He starts with chain gangs, and he also takes out in San Francisco, I guess it's that way, mm -hmm. um, he takes their 400 ships in San Francisco Bay that have been abandoned. They've come out for the gold rush. The captains and the sailors go, there's a lot more money up in the Sierras in the gold than there is in shipping people, other people back and forth. They abandon ships and they're rotting in the bay. And he takes two of them and he takes all of these convicts that have been sent to him and the legislature gives him the right to the full profit of their labor. And... He sails these ships all over San Francisco Bay, and the convicts build the sewage system of, of San Francisco. They build the um, streets of San Francisco. He hires them out to build some of the mansions in San Francisco. And finally, the legislature says to him, James, get on with it, build the penitentiary. And he forces this group of prisoners to build their own prison in San Quentin, it's not the right place. San Quentin is on a peninsula. It's not an island. People are not happy. It's really easy to escape because it's not an island. I, I like that little detail. It's also easy to escape because they built it, and they, 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 didn't put the, they didn't put the mortar in and some of the bricks in different places that they knew about so that they could push their way out again. I thought that's, that's, that's the way to, to resist a little bit. Yeah. They used salt <laughs> water for the mortar. And they knew exactly which bricks were implanted with, by salt water rather than glued together properly. Mm. And so when they wanted to escape, they just punched their way out and <laughs> left. Yeah. 
They Good. also kept rowboats, you know, right in front of San Quentin. And there are these great stories of people just rowing away. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we want to track back to my rebel spirit's commitment to slave revolts, which is a deep commitment. Um, We're on your side. Don't worry. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> that there was, um, in the 1850s, 1,000 prisoners at San Quentin go on strike. It is, I believe, the biggest prison strike up, to, up until Attica mm-hmm. prison. So the spirit to be free, um, to not be doing this enslaved labor, um, and to be tortured for doing it. San Quentin copies the prison system from the East Coast. And what they also copy are the forms of torture that were used at Auburn Prison in New York and in Pennsylvania. They called it the Quaker system. And that's transported into San Quentin. So when you're working in these mills inside San Quentin Prison, you're standing for 12 hours a day, forced to be silent. I could not be silent for 12 hours. (laughs) And... If you speak at all, then you were tortured. And it is the torture for, um, for talking, for moving, and the hunger and the rancid food. They had the sewage system dripping into the kitchen at San Quentin. So the prisoners who were forced to work in the kitchen know exactly how contaminated the food is and how dangerous it is to eat when they're so hungry. Well, let's, since we're, we're jumping around here, let's back off on something bigger. Um, we've had a lot of programs here over the last decade on uh, the, the uh, mass, Im- mass imprisonment of so many people and, and how in America and how that's a new form of slavery and that the numbers of people, if when you add up the imprisonment of not people for violent crimes, but just the people for, for more minor crimes or drug crimes and so on that are then used for their labor, plus the human trafficking, that there are more slaves now than there ever were in America. Some people, people make that conclusion, that there are so many millions of people involved in our not called slave system and not as vicious, perhaps, as the worst of our slave systems have been when it was legal but still very serious form of slavery for millions of people. And why don't we pay more attention to this? California's got the fifth largest economy in the world. Mm. I mean, if we think now of the competition between Russia and the United States and China for, you know, where the profit is being driven from and that California still has the fifth largest economy in the world. It is currently the 10th largest, San Francisco is the 10th largest city site of human trafficking in the United States. The 10th largest city for human trafficking in the U.S. It is phenomenal, the endurance of the greed for unpaid labor and the greed to control other people's bodies. And I think we need to, to reference, too, the control of women's bodies, Mm -hmm. that at each of these iterations of slavery that we've been talking about, whether it's the missions, the Russians, 
girls at the Indian boarding schools mm-hmm. um, who were sent out into what was called the outing programs that these children who were required to get an education, but there are no schools on the reservation. So it's a setup for the Indian boarding schools. And the biggest one was at Riverside, the Sherman boarding school. These kids, the day they come in, are stripped of their native clothing, not allowed to speak their native languages, not allowed to talk to their siblings, Mm -hmm. who are also in these schools. Sherman looks like Taco Bell. It's built to look like a mission. You know, if we want to think about architecture, Mm -hmm. I don't think that's an accident Mm -hmm. to have it copy the architecture of the missions. And these kids are sent through the outing programs. Each of these schools has an outing matron. And their job is effectively to be slave brokers. And they send the girls to work in the hotels and the boys to work in the new orange groves. That the girls who are sent into these hotels or homes as domestic servants are sexually vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Junipera Serra is terrified by the amount of rape that's happening at the missions. And his letters back to the mother mission are, this whole thing is going to fall apart if we can't stop the Spanish soldiers from raping the Indian women. How are we going to stop it? And nobody ever answers his letters. There's no back letters from his acknowledgement of the quantity of rape on on, and it goes through, the, Rus- the Russians have assaulted the Alaska natives. Mm-hmm. The women currently who are assaulted in prison, the girls who are sent into the hotels from the Indian boarding schools, the Chinese girls who are kidnapped from the coast of Guangdong, of Canton, and sold on the docks of San Francisco, and kept in caged, I guess it's that way, kept in caged brothels on Jackson Street that would become Grant Avenue. There are rows and rows of caged brothels where these girls are sold. A baby was sold for $30. The top price went to a teenage girl who was sold for $1,600 strip-searched, auctioned, and sold. We think New Orleans. Mm. We don't think our docks of San Francisco as a slave den. And the girls who aren't sold at the docks are taken to a room in Chinatown called the Queen's Room, and they're auctioned and sold there, either to serve the brothels of San Francisco or Sacramento or taken up to the gold country. So as we talk about this, I think we have to think about the children. These are very young girls. And we have to think about women in general. Not like in the South, where women were sold and tortured and held for their reproductive bodies, but for their sexual bodies Mm -hmm. and sexual access. So I think we can't tell this story without the women. No, we certainly can't. That's a, it's a huge part of it. I mean, but in, in this case, you're, you're, you, you take whatever you want from whomever you have. You know? So if it's either the labor on the railroads, et cetera, et cetera, you, you, you've got 
as you said, agreed for unpaid labor. Um, and you, you mentioned that the Spanish were, their whole plan for all of South America and Central America was this sort of plantation mentality, um, unpaid labor, and, and develop land that was undeveloped from our point of view. I think it's real important, though, especially here in California and San Francisco, that the Chinese men who come to work on the railroad mm-hmm. are free. Right. They're working under very detailed, elaborate contracts, but they are paid and they are free people. They're not, quote, coolies. They're not forced to come here to work on the railroad. The Chinese men who come from the gold rush come for the same reason every other man comes from the gold rush. It's a an oddly gendered migration mm-hmm. where the men come free, but the girls and young women are forced to come here. So I just think in, as we think about Asian American history, mm-hmm. to, uh, to recognize that the Chinese men who come, and when the railroad is finished, they come down from the Sierra Mountains, from Truckee, Nevada City, and come down, and they start all of the Chinatowns across California, and the women who start the Chinatowns, many of them were these enslaved girls who were either bought by one of their customers or freed by one of their customers, or they fled heroic stories. They fled to these rural towns, Marysville, um, Ukiah, Eureka. They fled to the rural towns to, and they are the women. You're not going to have a town without family, without women and children and legacy. So these freed runaway girls are, are having families mainly with Chinese men um, who've come down from the railroads or who stayed after the gold rush. Meanwhile, we have all the anti-Chinese immigration laws, the exclusion acts, that are trying to purge and do purge um, the United States. I'm going to ask a few questions here uh, from the audience. Uh, and one was, is, is direct on this point here. What was the impact of the Emancipation Proclamation on California? Because you, you point out that it only served one race. The Emancipation Proclamation, it's not only one race. The Emancipation Proclamation is only, it's 1863, the war is not over. Lincoln is under all of this pressure. This war is not about, um, this war is about slavery. He really is trying to, to think about it as keeping the United States as a whole. But the Civil War, as we all know, is a war over slavery and the war to expand slavery. 1863, under pressure, pressure Lincoln finally gets it and he writes you know, the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, it only frees enslaved people who live in states that have signed up to the Confederacy. So states like Delaware, where there is a huge population of enslaved people, not in the Confederacy, those enslaved people are not freed. Mm -hmm. So the Emancipation Proclamation is a little bit like Tolerate. It's got one pressure loophole mm. in it. And it it certainly covers the states and the Confederacy. But enslaved black people are already 
fleeing. I mean, this is mm -hmm. kind of closing the barn door a little bit, but it was hugely important. And then it leads to the 13th Amendment. Yeah, and it was, it was also politically timed. I mean, they, they held it back for quite a while and, and, uh, and put that clause in about only the uh, Confederacy states because they didn't want to lose Kentucky, who was, you know. Maryland, Delaware, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so we're going to ask, we, we only have a, a 10, 15 minutes left, so we're going to ask a couple more questions and we're going to finish with the reparations issue. There's a question on that. So uh, how did Spanish and Russian slavery differ from American chattel slavery of Africans? Were families separated? Were slaves bought and sold? Oh, the definition of chattel slavery and what constitutes chattel slavery, you can spend a lot of time mm -hmm. um, on that term. Um, it generally involves the ownership, the purchase, the sale of enslaved people. It also involves the right to the children who are born of an enslaved woman. The, there is no legal right to the child, the issue of an enslaved woman in California. Yet the children who were born at the mission, the children who were born of the enslaved Chinese girls, the children, some of whom are mixed race because they're fathered, through rape by the Russian fur traders and the Russian soldiers um, are not absolutely legally enslaved. I think, without going too far into the weeds, in the Constitution has a big buy. The U.S. Constitution has a big buy in it on behalf of slaveholders. And it says that slaveholders have 20 years until 1808 to hold on to, um, to keep the global slave trade in Africans going. So there is a crush to buy enslaved people from the time of the Constitution till 1808. 1808 is a deadly, deadly time for enslaved African-American women because it falls to them with the end of the slave trade from African. Um, it falls to the women to reproduce the next generations of enslaved blacks, people, children in the plantation system. So that's part of the definition of chattel slavery. Um, that does not hold legally in California, but they backdoor into it. The American, the National Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 doesn't work for California because an enslaved person hasn't crossed the border to find freedom. So California rewrites it. I didn't learn this, but in high school or at Berkeley, mm -hmm. the California writes its own Fugitive Slave Act of 1852. And it says that slave owners voluntarily brought enslaved people into California and they can be trapped and sold if they flee within the state. They don't have to cross a border mm -hmm. to do that. It also builds in this very scary thing called the sojourner law. Slaveholders could say, we're not living in California. We're just sojournering, sojournering, mm -hmm. crummy verb, here. <laughs> and 
that we're going to leave. And so this, the California Fugitive Slave Act builds in that people can keep enslaved people in the state, enslaved African Americans in the state for three years. It's a three-year forgiveness by, and that gives them time to either decide to settle here or return after abusing, using people for three years. Um, another one, the well-known Africanist Ali Mazrui states in one of his books that the root cause of, for slavery was capitalism and the need for cheap labor. Can you say the same about enslaving Native Americans and by extension new immigrants or migrants you know, in the human trafficking of today? I think, we kind of I think the need for unpaid labor runs through every iteration of slavery that we've been talking about, whether it's a mercantile economy, a capitalist economy, a profit economy, that human trafficking, mm -hmm. how these all feed together is, of course, very complicated. But the need for unpaid, the greed for unpaid labor mm -hmm. is a huge drive towards the enslavement of other people. But power, assault, rape, um, and the development of this incredible land of California that was peacefully lived on for between 6,000 and 12,000 years before the Spanish arrived. And who was going to work this land? Uh, what was the relationship between African stories of slavery and Native American stories of slavery? Well... It was something in my, in my spirit, my politics, that I hoped to find, and I didn't. And I have come to understand that people who are really, truly desperate and are thinking of their own freedom and their own survival are not at a point where they can build across languages, mm -hmm. across geographies, where they're building coalitions with other people. The biggest place where different ethnic and racial groups were aware of each other's situation was in the right to testify in court. It's throughout the first laws of California that neither African Americans, Native Americans, or Chinese people are allowed to testify in court. And they talk about it when they talk about the, the need to testify. And there are three colored conventions. The first civil rights movement in California copies this national movement of colored conventions all across the United States. The, three in, the first three in California are only about the right to testify. And they focus very much on the situation of free blacks who can't testify to the fact that they are free. If you're hauled into court, and you can't produce your manumission paper, you can't enter into evidence your freedom paper, then you can be enslaved again. So it isn't a divide between freedom and the right to testify, but I didn't expect to find that one overarching legal issue, mm -hmm. the unifying thread amongst free black people in California. I just want to mention uh, briefly the, your, your story about Charlotte Brown in 1863, who was, uh, did exactly what Rosa Parks did 90-some years later. Um, I thought that was a fascinating 
an unfortunate uh, that the same problem had to be uh, tried to be pushed back against for for centuries. Can we just say who Charlotte Brown was? Sure, go ahead. Okay. We want to talk about reparations, though. All right, we will talk about it. Yeah, but Charlotte, it's a great story in the book. Charlotte Brown yes. plays the same We role, have basically. the head of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission here. We will not ignore yeah. the issue of, um, of reparations today. But, okay, Charlotte Brown. Women are not supposed to cry at work, and we're not supposed to, you know, we're not supposed to cry at work. I was at the California Historical Society, and I find this little torn piece of paper. It looks like something we would tear from a supermarket bag. Charlotte Brown, when they built the trolley system in San Francisco, Charlotte Brown is the daughter of a very powerful African-American um, figure in, in San Francisco history, James Brown. She's his daughter. She goes to ride the, the new trams, the new trolleys that have just been built, and they kick her off. And she rides it again, and they kick her off because they say a black woman cannot be sit, seated next to a white woman. And I just really was intrigued. I wanted to find this story. It's 100 years ahead of Rosa Parks. They throw Charlotte off the train, and she decides to do it as a test case. The next time she gets thrown off, she and her dad, so this is this incredible political father-daughter, very moving story, um, plan for her to write it again, deliberately be thrown off, and sue. And they sue the omnibus trolley company, and they win, and she wins a nickel and the right to ride the train, and she's not satisfied. And she goes back, and her dad takes a note and writes on this crappy piece of paper, um, today I bought Charlotte two tickets to ride the tram again. And this is a deliberate political gesture and an archive. And to me, it just meant the inspiration from a very savvy father who knows exactly how to record the deliberateness of what they've done. And Charlotte Brown gets thrown off again and sues again, and she wins several hundred dollars this time, and the permanent right for African-Americans to ride the trolley system mm -hmm. in California, a hundred years ahead of Rosa Parks. And as someone who learned so much from my dad, um, when I saw that little piece of deliberate paper, I just felt the relationship and the power and the history and just touching you know, physically touching that document just was so inspiring of what we owe our children. All right. Now, the history is awful. We, we, we don't learn the accurate history. And how are we supposed to fix the past or at least fix the, the future uh, based upon inaccurate information? So first of all, thanks for, for making this a much more accurate form of history about what we've done to each other. Um, I think that's always the crucial first step. The crucial second step is, you know, it's nice to diagnose the problem, but now what do you do about it? What, what do you do about it? So now you're working on the reparations or have been, 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 uh, been speaking in front of them, and, and where do you think we should go to make this better? Well, I haven't been actively working. Um, I did 
speak before the San Francisco Reparations Commission last week, but it was really to give context and support for the incredible work that the San Francisco Reparations Commission has done and the California Reparations Commission, too, which are two formidable um, initiatives because slavery costs. And I don't believe that apologies... um, Everyone is issuing apologies right now. There are apologies for the Exclusion Act. There's apologies for the missions. There's apologies for enslavement. I think witnessing matters. Stories matter. History matters. Truth matters. But I don't think truth always fixes the problem. And the era we're living in, the denial of fact, the denial of truth, makes us understand that apologies can be tepid. Mm -hmm. They can acknowledge a truth, but they don't fix it. Everywhere that slavery happened, it cost. It cost Native Americans all of their land. Um, It cost Alaska Natives when they were transported here. It was a very gendered culture. The men hunted seals and sea lions for food. Um, They didn't eat the otter. Doesn't taste good. Um, You couldn't snag a whale in a kayak. Mm. But without the men, the women whose task was to dig for roots, to cook, and to build the kayaks were starving. And so slavery cost. It cost in hunger. The African Americans who were brought out here were separated from their families. They couldn't provide for their families, either free or enslaved. There was no paid labor um, if you're enslaved. And so there's a reckoning. And my reason for testifying was to really speak to the history of slavery in California. I firmly believe that anyone who is the descendant of an enslaved person has paid dearly for the history, the legacy that they have been brought into. They've lost education, they've lost food, they've lost wages, they've lost access to their family, they've lost medical care, they've been imprisoned for irrelevant or unimportant crimes, crimes like marijuana that's now legal, Mm -hmm. that people we know have gone to jail for several years for marijuana are suddenly, they lost all these years, critical young years, for something that's now legal. So slavery costs, and the $8.5 billion that has been assigned is one of the first numbers, dollar figures nationally, that has been pegged to the reparations movement. It's going to be debated. Who gets it? How do you prove it? How many generations down? Those are going to be hard, hard discussions. But what the Reparations Commission has understood is that slavery costs, it costs in terms of money, of of legacy, of inheritance, of wages, of skill sets, of health. And that has to be paid for. There is no apology that's going to make that restitution, okay, 
the reparations, in my view, the definition I use is justice that repairs. Reparations are justice that repairs. And when we turn to the, the justice part, we get. But when we turn to the repair part, we're going to have to acknowledge that it's going to be very, very expensive to create the equality that's going to relaunch California. Now, our societies are all based on ideas, too, and it seems to me that one of the crucial things that needs to be done is to, to realize that determinism and fate and these ideas that allow us to look at other people as objects and not as individual free will people that need to be respected about their minds, as long as we do that, we're always going to be able to, to do that. We're always going to be able to think of other people as objects for our use. And I think until we see everybody as an individual mind that has their own free will, we always have the chance of slipping back into this. So we have to keep on the issue. Yeah, I think, I think democracy is about ideas. It starts with an idea, an idea of equality, an idea of access to justice, and an idea of economic equality, which I believe in, um, that slavery has turned human beings into objects that can be bought and sold and raped and traded and abused. I think we have to think about the children, the number of children. I mean, right now, we don't know who we call our kids. I mean, we're supporting postdocs and we think of them as the kids. So it's, um, <laughs> you know, the notion of childhood in America keeps getting longer and longer and longer. But we're thinking of babies who were sold for $30 here. We're thinking of young children, young Native American boys who built the fields in California, of enslaved African Americans who dug the gold in the mines on behalf of their owners, young men who were brought out because they were sturdy and healthy and they had skills. You know, they knew how to manage oxen and cattle. Nobody knew how to dig for gold. So I think the notion of children has to be brought into our notion of justice. Absolutely. Okay, well, we have now finished another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 121st year of enlightened discussion. And we really want to thank you, Gene, for, for spending those years writing a more accurate history about the slavery in California and, and then for sharing it with all of us. Thanks well, a lot. Thank you, Jared. And those of you who want more of the details, uh, Jean's book is for sale out in the lobby and she'll be signing copies if you'd like that too. So thank you very much for coming. It's great to see so many people here in person. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.